Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Let's talk about myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv, here with another exciting episode. Another exciting conversation episode, I should say, and one that I think a lot of people are going to really appreciate. I've already heard from a couple of people ever since I just said I was going to have this conversation episode about asexuality in Greek mythology, and so I'm really thrilled to be able to bring it to you. I think that it's a really interesting topic and obviously really important as well, especially just when it comes to representation and people now feeling like they can see themselves back then. So today, I'm utterly thrilled to have spoken with Julie Levy, an independent scholar who studies a lot of this stuff, amongst many other things. It was such a thrill talking to Julie. They really opened up my mind when it comes to all of these topics and asexuality in general and all the varied levels of it. And I personally learned so much, kind of had my eyes opened in a lot of really fascinating ways. It was such a fun conversation. We just kind of kept talking and talking and I had to whittle it down into this hour episode for you. But honestly, such a thrill, so important, so fascinating, so entertaining. So I am utterly thrilled to present it to you today.
conversations. Not just a phase, Atalanta and Hippolytus, and asexuality in Greek mythology with Julie Levy. Julie for sitting down with me today and talking about this we're talking about asexuality in Greek myth which is super fascinating so I'm so thrilled I'm so thrilled when you sent me that message about it because it's one of those things that I feel like I don't know remotely enough to talk about and so I'm very excited to have somebody on who actually studies this yeah well you know not too many people really have studied this yet in fact when I was sort of looking around um there's I mean, it's not too surprising that people haven't studied asexuality in Greek myth and in antiquity in general, because it's still such a new concept, even for our culture as a whole. Like, there are still a lot of people who don't understand what asexuality is and what it covers. And then there's the added layer of trying to apply a modern sexuality term to the ancient world where such things only kind of apply. So asexuals, which is to say people who do not experience sexual attraction or a lot of other things that come under the asexual or ace umbrella, like demisexual, where you only feel sexual attraction after an emotional bond has been formed, or people who are aromantic, who experience sexual desire, but not romantic desire and all sorts of things like that. All of that is, has always existed. There have always been people who were those things, but the categories and the terms are all different. So looking at asexuality in the context of ancient myth or ancient world studies, you have to be careful uh, not to impose too much categorization and to keep it sort of theoretical, like where might these people be? Um, And, you know, we had this problem when when LGBT stuff was starting to be an accepted field when when gay and lesbian people were starting to be accepted into society as a normal part of life in in the US and so, and so on we suddenly had this problem of well how do we talk about that in relation to Athens where pederasty is what people know about which is not your average modern gay relationship, right? But some people think it is, and that's not a good thing. Um, So we can't just apply gay to pederasty. That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But we do have people in gay relationships in the ancient world. I mean, the sacred band of Thebes is, you know, what else is that, right? It's a bunch of gay lovers who fight. Um... (laughs) And so when we talk about asexuality in ancient myth, we're not talking about, okay, I'm going to point to a person who is definitely for sure asexual and presented as specifically asexual. I'm going to talk about signs that point to people with asexual modes of existence, right? Hmm. It's a little bit more hedged than you can properly say quickly. It's That's all so fascinating and so much how I have been trying to approach stories in the more, you know, the last couple of years, say, in my podcast, certainly in the last year. Um, The deeper I get into just even, like, 
academic friends on Twitter, which has been a real game changer for me, has led me to hedge that a lot more as well. Just when I'm talking about, you know, the even, you know, the the more traditional LGBTQ characters um, and then also trying to to mention that pederasty was a thing in Athens while also pointing out how it is clearly not like a traditional gay relationship or even like a remotely okay gay relationship. And it was just about power dynamics more than it was about, um, you know, sexuality and genders and, and, you know, who loved who it was about power um, making it inherently problematic. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been really interesting um, making those points lately too, of just like making sure to clarify and, and say like, as much as, you know, we do want to put some certain labels, I think, I think some labels are helpful, especially in the way I do this podcast. So I do try to use some labels um, at times when when appropriate, some modern labels, I should clarify, because I think that it can be very beneficial to people to see themselves in stories. And so, you know, I'm going to call Dionysus by, but I'm going to clarify at the top to like hedge it on, you know, he would have not necessarily understood that. And, you know, there's no terminology, blah, blah, blah. Right. But like objectively Dionysus is pretty bisexual. (laughs) Like let's, I mean. Disaster by. (laughs) Like he just is. I mean, all of the Greek gods that were by are disaster by. (laughs) I was trying to do a lot today. And so I actually am like, I have, I'm about 20 minutes through a 30 minute recording of, of this week's episode, which is part two of um, Nonus's Dionysiaca story of Dionysus and Ampelus, which is like the only version we have that's actually long and drawn out and not just like he died and became a grapevine. And it's fascinating because it's there's so much talk about all of those other it's like about that relationship, but then it's also talk about Apollo and Hyacinthus and Zeus and Ganymede and, mm-hmm. and Poseidon and Pelops and uh, you know, Zephyr and Cyparissus, and they're all tragic. <laughs> they all lead the mortal to be dead, or I guess not in the case of Pelops, but like his life wasn't great. Um, yeah, not so Ganymede either, but uh, no, wow. Well, true, yeah, but <laughs> yeah, they like to say in that whole version, it's all about how Ganymede had the best life, and you're like, did he though? <laughs> like, like the thing that I can never get over is his name. Like, how do you name a kid Shining Balls? Is that what that means? That's what that means. <laughs> I love that I get to talk to people on this podcast <laughs> to learn things like that. I'm like, I've already brought us totally off topic, but we've got that out of it. So really, <laughs> that is exciting. Um, yeah, I just, it's so fascinating the way that they like wanted to to turn these stories into something that they like objectively were not. Like in, in known as he's all like, well, Ganymede got everything. He had a ride on an eagle. <laughs> And then he got to be a cupbearer and Zeus, his talons as an eagle were very gentle. You're like, (laughs) okay, like, does that make his experience good or consensual or not horrifying? (laughs) Oh, yay. The rape of a child by Zeus was gentle. Mm. The talons specifically were gentle. So, (laughs) yeah, anyway, it's wild. Um, But that's all to say, I think it it is very interesting to like, to hedge these things and also to do what you do, which is like looking into it. And people have asked me a lot about asexual characters in Greek mythology. And just because, you know, I don't, I I don't put too much. I don't like to put too many labels on, um, on women. I think mostly not because they wouldn't have been obviously, but because 
what tends to be the case is that we don't have their stories. We don't have their side of the story. So there, it's not really fair to say that, for instance, that Artemis was asexual because we just don't have her stories. Like we know she hung out with a lot of nymphs. And, and, and so like, I think that if, if somebody were to actually sit down and be like, okay, well, what did they actually believe about Artemis? What are the stories they actually told that didn't get written down? Like, I would say she was probably in love with a few of those nymphs, if not just one, you know? So it's just an interesting thing to, to, to handle those situations. Um, but now I'm just talking so much. So please <laughs> tell me about the the characters you do study and then the asexuality in, in general that, you, that you're studying. Well, um, in particular, I really wanted to talk about Artemis first um, and specifically right. for that reason, right? Because, um, you know, women and even goddesses don't often get agency in the myths mm-hmm. that we receive and Artemis in particular is kind of aloof we don't get much of her side of anything except in like the Orion myth sometimes when mm-hmm. it's acceptable because she has the hots for a guy right so mm-hmm. um, whether or not Artemis is an asexual figure uh, whether she is a sexual but celibate figure because she was taken from uh, this this sort of corresponding mother of beasts uh, goddess who was more popular in the Near East, you know, or whether she's in fact sapphic, like you said, in love with those nymphs, um, very anti-man, anti-marriage. And, you know, of course, marriage f- uh, and, and no longer being a virgin for the Greeks um, in terms of women was actually about childbirth, not about sex. So if you bore a child, you were no longer a virgin. But if you had sex, well, maybe, you know, who could tell anyway? So so what is Artemis? We just, we can't really pin that down to any one thing. But what she is, is a refuge for people who don't want sex. Hmm. Because we get a lot of these figures, and in particular the two I mentioned I wanted to talk about today, both Hippolytus and Atalanta are devotees of Artemis. And we see this a lot with young male warriors who reject sex. Um, Atalanta's later son, for instance, Parthenopaeus, is also a devotee of Artemis. And sometimes he's depicted also as sort of asexual leaning, and sometimes he's depicted more as just too young to have really finished going through puberty and figured that out. Um, But I have to say that there's this pushback that you get sometimes when you talk about asexuality in the ancient world, and you talk about these characters who sort of reject sexuality like, oh, Narcissus or, Mm. or Hippolytus. And people will say, oh, well, they're just adolescents. They don't know what they want yet. It's like, how many adolescents do you know who go through puberty rejecting the idea of sexuality? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. either they're ace in some degree, they're having issues outside of that spectrum in some degree, or they're full of hormones and are horny. Like, that's the more common experience, right? There's no reason to assume that when a young man is rejecting sex, like Hippolytus does Phaedra, that that's some kind of teenage rebellion. That doesn't really jive. But that's what you hear a lot of times. Yeah, that's interesting. Because, I mean, yeah, likelihood is, you know, a 16, 17, 18-year-old cis-het man 
that isn't ace is gonna be going through some sexual like right. he's got the hormones so yeah i mean the likelihood is he's not choosing just being like no i definitely feel the sexual desire but i'm just actively deciding not to go for it you know yeah right it, that's an interesting thing right so um and and you know there's a lot of confusion about what asexuality is among uh, older scholars in particular but a lot of scholars who just their focus is not on the modern world so you know you say asexual and they think well what are you bud <laughs> like like that's what? like their their association with asexual is like asexual reproduction like fungi or mitochondria oh <laughs> <laughs> So, so like when you, when you talk about, no, there are people who lack sexual desire or all, all the possible variations or like maybe there are some aces who have sex and I'll talk about that more when I get to Atalanta. Mm. Like, they're like, well, aren't they just straight? No, no, this isn't, this isn't heterosexual desire being repressed. This is... Yeah not having that desire so mm -hmm. there's a lot of confusion i think in the scholarly world about what it actually means to have asexual or anything on that end of the spectrum sort of characters so uh i want to get into hippolytus first and Please. so you were mentioning that hippolytus is like really complicated as a story and like he's got this whole tangled web with phaedra and theseus who are these larger than life outsized oh characters and theseus is the worst <laughs> i was just i mean i was like oh should i do i need to with every single person do i have to say that theseus is the worst and then you did anyway he, he, so he's the thank worst you. um the the only person worse than theseus is jason <laughs> no okay so quick tangent we'll see how much stays in why no theseus is definitely worse jason is shit i i think of jason more as benign shit and uh, theseus is like actively dangerous shit uh i think i think that is an entirely valid opinion i just happen to hate jason a little bit worse okay but that may be because of my own personal experiences <laughs> All right, I'll give you that. Jason is the worst. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, no, they're terrible. I feel the need, but oh, and if you need another plug for Hades, Theseus is the worst. He's so fucking annoying. It's great. I love to hate him so much. That's I think that's my thing. I love to hate him. He's terrible. Um, and then poor Phaedra. Like I feel so sorry for Phaedra. Like everything about her situation is just rotten. Um, for it's just she, awful. Yeah. She's sacrificed to the biggest asshole in the world, um, a serial after destroyer. He abandoned, her yeah, after he abandoned, yeah, after he abandoned her sister on an island, like yeah, well, yeah, yeah, and and then like Aphrodite's like, nah, I'm just gonna fuck with you to get at some other man. Like, why, why, really, why? Because a lot of women in Greek mythology are agents of the patriarchy. Da da. <laughs> <laughs> But Hippolytus is really, really interesting as a character because, you know, the thing that sets that whole plot off is that he comes in and he sees two statues. He sees Artemis, his, you know, his great goddessly love, you know, the object of his devotion, who is virginal, who is sexless, who embodies this purity of staying hunting 
staying out in the woods, staying doing natural, physical things of avoiding society. And Hippolytus is like, yeah, I am all about. And it's not like he's effeminate at all. Not at all. He embodies Greek young warrior manhood, right? He is super strong. He's super tough. He's uh, he's good looking. He's a great hunter. He's a good son. Even though, you know, his dad is a shit and his mom is dead. <laughs> but Because his dad is a shit. Right. Um <laughs> And like he doesn't he doesn't even like he's like, you know, I I can respect whoever he marries next. That's you know, it's not my problem. Um, and I don't even really care if I inherit. Like that's not his deal. He's just like, I just want to be me and be free of this nonsense. Um but his mistake is with the second statue of Aphrodite. He is so incensed with Aphrodite with the idea of sex that he rejects her he spits on her he he's he curses her and you know you can't re you can't actively reject a god that's never a good idea like no, at, no. if you don't like them you just Be quiet just don't say anything yeah like that's your best bet and like if you have to say something be like I respect what you do over there <laughs> like that's stay away that's from fine. me but over there fine yeah. like you know if you gotta placate the furies you placate the furies you don't want their attention do not piss off aphrodite but of course that's exactly what he does he pisses off aphrodite and even like in the moment like his attendants are like maybe you want to walk that back and he's like no no oh. aphrodite respect represents the most disgusting aspects of humanity and you know i can understand how somebody who's raised by theseus or well not raised by theseus might feel that way right um he comes he's a he's a male son of an amazon mm -hmm. and the world's biggest dickhead of course he feels that way, but even if he didn't feel that way, like, for, for you know, emotional reasons, the fact that he is repulsed by the idea of sex, that he never wants sex for himself as a young man, like we were saying, you know, this is a guy who is likely just flooded with hormones all the time, but he doesn't want sex. He doesn't want men. He doesn't want women. He doesn't want non-binary people. He is just happy being by himself, being on the hunt. And that is a frankly very asexual position. Not all aces are sex repulsed, but some are. And I think it's actually a fairly, you know, outside of aces, a fairly uncommon thing to be repulsed by sex, um, to have that strong a reaction to it. And so, you know, I was talking this through with a, a friend of mine who's also working on sort of the Roman angle uh, of asexuality in, in myth. Um, and like, I don't think I would ever even have thought to apply my identity to, to mythology in this way if it hadn't been for those conversations. You know, and, and she brought up, you know, at the end of that play, Hippolytus is killed by a bull. 
right? Like mm-hmm. rushing out of the sea, like kind of non sequitur, like what is a bull doing in the sea? What is this about? And a lot of people will argue back and forth about what the bull represents. I've heard uh, one, one very respected classicist make an argument that it's his repressed sexual nature coming up out of the sea to claim him right. Right. So there's, <laughs> I made a face that that's the, not, that's a non-audio thing. <laughs> got that reaction there. <laughs> Yeah. So um, it, it's a little bit far-fetched, right? But it's also far-fetched that a bull comes out of the sea and kills him. So like, what does it do? <laughs> yeah. there? Um, mm. And, you know, it would at least you could kind of follow the steps if it were his repressed sexual desire, but there's absolutely no indication that it is. Right? Like there's just not much there. Unless you look forward to Ovid, who who does some some playing with that hmm. and talks about the swell of the waves and, you know, all of those sorts of innuendo. <laughs> but, like, even, even if that is, Hippolytus shows no sexual desire. Mm-hmm. None at all. And this actually reminds me of one of the things that people in modern day get wrong about aces. Having no sexual attraction to other people doesn't necessarily mean that your body never wants sexual action. Sometimes aces have libido. Sometimes aces masturbate. Some aces even have sex and like they're not necessarily just attracted to the person they're having sex with, but maybe they love them or maybe it's sort of a fleeting interaction or maybe it's more about friendship for them. Like there are a lot of ways in which sex can still come into an ACEs being. And so maybe as a teenager with raging hormones, these are his sexual feelings that have absolutely nowhere to go and no part in his day-to-day life. That seems plausible. But why, why a bull? Why the sea? I still have not quite figured that one out. <laughs> well, it's very, um, I almost feel like it just, it pulls it back to Phaedra in an interesting way um, because of her origins, right? I mean, a bull from the sea is is literally where she comes from as a, as a person from Crete and that culture. So I find that quite interesting to just connect it back to Europa and Zeus and, and, and the Cretan bull and, you know, that... That's hmm. kind of a it's an interesting piece. I don't know kind of where it goes, but that's that's my first thought when I hear, you know, a bull coming from the sea is I'm thinking Zeus and Europa. Like I know this is a bull and not obviously a god. Um, but it's an interesting connection, especially with with Phaedra involved, who is so obviously, you know, from that bull dynasty of Crete. And yeah, and that makes sense too. Um, I actually like that a lot because then you have the connection back to Phaedra's actions are what killed him and nothing that he did mm. at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He didn't do anything. Yeah. He just said no. That's all. Yeah. So, yeah. so Phaedra's note, Phaedra's bowl, Phaedra's mm-hmm. desire, not his. Mm-hmm. I like that. Here for bull iconography information. <laughs> <laughs> That's really fascinating. And Hippolytus... As I kind of mentioned to you, you know, off mic, um, it I would say it's not him I feel this way about, but the story. And I didn't, I covered the story of Phaedra um, back in March for Women's Month. 
um, because I hadn't really talked about her before and I think it's valid, but I also don't want to go too close to, you know, a, a false rape a- accusation, which does exist in Hippolytus, the play I'm referring to broadly, Euripides is mm-hmm. Hippolytus, which mm-hmm. is where most of the story comes from. Um, and so it's kind of hard to wrap your head around, you know, like, yeah it's just sort of it's a tricky thing but i do think the story of hippolytus as a person is very interesting and phaedra too so i'm you know i I tried to tell her story without the play and just more about her and then the the character interactions but i think this is a, a really perfect way to add to it and sort of add that layer of complexity and you know where is she to blame and where is it aphrodite inflicting this upon her you know it, it's an interesting thing and um i was talking to uh jennifer saint who's the author of that the new book ariadne mm-hmm. and she feature is very much in that book which i was very happy with that's so, sort of some of my favorite parts were were looking at phaedra and in that it's a little bit more of phaedra being this person who never experienced kind of anything of her own um you know she was taken by theseus and married him and didn't love him and he didn't love her and and it was all just so messy. And so I think she like in in that you kind of get the sense from her where she is almost just sort of latching onto the first person that she thinks she can actually love. And obviously there's a lot of problems. There's a, it's not none of it, you know, ultimately makes, you know, her, you know, professing her attraction in that way and 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 dealing with his rejection in that way to be okay obviously but it adds an interesting layer about where she's kind of coming from and then you know add to that the the aphrodite aspects and it's just an interesting like additional kind of pieces to to the puzzle of of that story right and one thing you have to remember when you're dealing with phaedra is that she is about hippolytus's age yes true exactly i actually meant to mention that because that's a key part in in the book as well is yeah she's not necessarily like an older woman if you think about the math on it she's probably not she's often portrayed as such in representations of this story because she's married to theseus but she's a lot younger than theseus too so yeah it's an interesting addition right and and i think we see this actually a lot in these stories of unrequited love in greek mythology like in narcissus where Mm. you know you know we we were talking earlier how a lot of these figures they'll get dismissed as, oh, their asexuality is really just them going through a teenage rebellion. Well, the women in these stories are often of a very similar, if not literal age, than sort of comparative age. Like Echo, Mm -hmm. sure, she's a nymph, she's whatever. But she is clearly in the mindset of a young woman when she goes after Narcissus. And yeah, okay, Narcissus is like in his late teens, but so are the other people involved a lot of the time Mm -hmm. and especially for women we don't we don't actually see a lot of cougar stories no so that actually brings me around to the other person i wanted to talk about which is atalanta Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and i love atalanta she was my hero as a kid how could you not she's amazing she's amazing so just in brief to to go over her story you know atalanta was uh born to someone who didn't want a daughter exposed brought up in the wilderness she's the fastest runner the best hunter she's from the wild of the mountains in arcadia and she is a badass she is a warrior woman who takes no shit and um she eventually in most stories gets sort of re 
introduced to her father's family and taken into that. And then she, there's sort of an expectation that she's going to get married off as a, as a power piece, because that's the lot of noble women and King's daughters in, in ancient Greece. But she's like, no, I don't want to get married. You know what? Here's the deal. I'll get married to the man who can beat me in a foot race. And she knows that no one can. She knows it's impossible. And the thing is, none of the myths ever contradict this. No one could ever beat her in a fair foot race. It just doesn't happen. And she, like Hippolytus, is devoted to Artemis and often is among Artemis's like literal coterie, like Artemis and her nymphs and her her women, her mortal women who are in her entourage. And uh, Atalanta is one of them. So Atalanta doesn't want to get married. Um, and this foot race, when it finally happens, um, this one guy, and his name varies in a couple of ways, he he figures out, he's in love with her, he's obsessed, he's like, okay, he prays to Aphrodite to give him some way to beat her, because he knows he's going to try, but all of the men who fail get killed. So... He gets these three golden apples that are irresistible. Like, that is that is the quality Aphrodite bestows upon them. And so every time he almost catches up to her in the race, he tosses one ahead of her. And she gets distracted and goes to pick it up. And this is how he beats her. So she says, well, okay, fine. I guess I have to get married. That sucks. But she still doesn't live like a normal married Greek woman. Yes, she has a son, Parthenopius, and God, I love that name too, because you hear the Parthenos in that. Yep. That's, you know, the maiden. Um, and so Pios's face. Huh. Yeah, the Greeks love their speaking names. It's really fun. Hmm. Atalanta's name. Um, I've never heard anybody say this, but I know that it has something to do with uh, equal measurement in Greek. Hmm. And so I've always interpreted that as... She's as good as any man. Hmm. She carries equal weight. And you know she carries equal weight because the other story about her is her going on the hunt for the Caledonian boar. Mm -hmm. She's on this war party hunting for a boar, which is the most dangerous uh, wild game. They're really, really dangerous. They're really hard in Assassin's Creed Odyssey. The Caledonian boar was really hard to kill. I bet. I bet. They're, They're super dangerous. Um, they're quick, they're smart, and they've got giant tusks. And they can and they're big enough to take down a horse and rider. So so she's on this hunt with like big badasses like Meliager and whoever, and she's the one who ends up killing it. She's that good. So and like she gets to go on some versions on the Argo. She gets to go mm-hmm. on, on that journey, and she's one of the few who like really go all the way and survive it she's she is an utter badass and then like in the next generation because you know the hero stories come in sort of generations so in the next generation you know when parthenopius is a young man he's one of the seven against thebes hmm i didn't know that yeah 
I realized just for my listeners here, I chose to cover that story by covering Phoenician women instead of Aeschylus. And so if anyone's interested in remembering that, I did cover uh, that in Jocasta's episode from just this past March. We just went with Phoenician women instead of instead of um, of Aeschylus' Seven Against Thebes because I love Euripides. <laughs> uh, no argument there. I love Euripides too. It's and also I- quicker. It's both stories in one and I like that. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a really nice way of putting it all together. And so in that version, there's a very brief mention of Parthenopias there. And the interesting thing is that in Phoenici, Phoenician women, Parthenopias is described as, you know, a young man with a beautiful flowing mane of hair and a shield bearing the insignia of his mother hunting the Caledonian boar. I okay. I I love that I literally covered this three months ago, and I forgot it until you're saying all this, and I'm like, I have literally said all this on the podcast. How am I not remembering? So thank you for reminding. Yeah, I remember now, realizing all. It of is that. A, it is a really <laughs> small detail if you're looking at Seven Against Thebes, but it's a really yeah. interesting detail if you're looking at Atlanta, right? which I always am interested in her. So I'm sure yeah. that I very loudly was like, that was Atlanta's son. Or yeah, yeah, sorry. it's yeah. awesome. <laughs> So, yeah. so Atalanta is this figure of this warrior woman who is allowed to be a warrior woman who is allowed to express her lack of sexual interest, her lack of romantic interest. She doesn't want a man. She needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. <laughs> like she, she bore a child and then put him on the doorstep and walked away, went back to Artemis. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. 
beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. people get to do that right because when this happened to callisto which i'm sure Mm -hmm. you've covered (laughs) when this happened to callisto artemis was like heck no you get to be a bear Mm -hmm. like you bore a child you're out yeah that story is so sad (laughs) it is it's is ridiculous and uh screw the gods (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah exactly (laughs) but in any case atalanta is so divorced from childbearing, from sex, mm-hmm. that she's allowed to rejoin Artemis's group. I love that. That's, yeah, that's a real thrill. Yeah, and I think it has to do a lot with her just complete indifference to her marriage. To, mm-hmm. she's like, yeah, okay, I had sex. I had sex, I produced a son, this is the point, right? Here you go, have fun, I'm done now. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, her husband is described as loving her, but she's never described as loving him. Hmm. Right? Like, that's just not even a part of it. And even Mm -hmm. if she does, like, it's okay for her to be like, okay, this isn't rape. This is something I agreed to. I can get this over with. Fine. But I'm just gonna go and be with my ace pals now. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said, there are plenty of people who will say, oh, but she's just like a sapphic or something. And I'm like, come on. Well, that's the thing. I think it goes back to this like assumption that if you don't want to have sex with men, then you want to have sex with women. Which is like, there is an in-between. <laughs> like, there, it's not a binary. And I, I have to say, I just love a, I love a story where a woman is allowed to have absolutely no maternal interest or in, or like or want to have a child at all that that is a Ab- real thrill for, for me personally um right? i i am one of those people who didn't like children when she was a child and yeah and i never <laughs> developed a liking for kids um i have I'm- i have so so my my brother has kids and there is this wonderful photo of me with his brand new baby where i'm holding her up kind of uncertainly and he captioned it, so they tell me you're human. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, that I, I identify with this. <laughs> like, I love my nibblings. I do. But I did not know what to do with them when they were very little. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I'm with you so deeply. I mean, the point for me is it's, it's really wonderful as somebody who is not only under the ace umbrella, but also a gender to see that there is a place in Greek society for people like me. To see that there was a place in history for people who didn't give a damn. Yep. (laughs) Like, I don't think Atalanta could care one whit if she's a man or a woman, except that she gets to run with Artemis. Yeah, because priorities, (laughs) right? Right. Sometimes certain things matter to you more than others, and that's okay. <laughs> right. So I think this is part of why Atalanta always appealed to me. Like, I have no maternal instinct, at least not towards actual literal children. I mean, my fur baby might disagree. But, <laughs> I know. My- but you know, I don't have maternal instinct. I don't experience 
what most people would would think of when they think of sexual desire i'm i demisexual if that matters to people listening i have no aesthetic attraction whatsoever and so it's it's always sort of encouraging for me personally to look back and see there's a place for a woman who doesn't fit there's a mm-hmm. place for even even a woman of excellent upbringing or breeding to say that isn't me mm-hmm. and you know i i wouldn't begrudge anyone who who sees themselves in atalanta as as a lesbian either because that's one of the great things about these myths is you know there there's so many versions that you can find a one, one that feels like you but i also just think it's really important that we don't deny the the space that this creates mm-hmm. that we can have someone like hippolytus or atalanta and that's okay that artemis as a goddess holds space for adults who do not want to participate in sexual exchange or sexual desire or the 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 life of parenthood that is laid out for most people mm-hmm. i think it's so important i mean that's it, i think you've just sort of exemplified sort of everything i i try to do with you know certain stories at least on the podcast because i do think that's so important and i think that you know, it's a little bit different, I think, when you're in certain academic circles, but it, it is really hard in when it comes to just like commercial representation of Greek mythology, because you fall into all of these like pre pre dug holes of like, uh-huh. you know, what Greek myth is and, and who these people are. And, and it it's just it, it like it really limits so much and and so many you know experiences and and lifestyles and just like existences in the world that it you know I I mean I started this because I wanted to bring the women like the voices of women of Greek mythology because they are severely underrepresented um and that's how I identify you know uh, like but at the same time you know I also my intention is to make sure that everyone can identify. So I'm a straight woman, but I'm like thrilled with the idea that, I mean, certainly like this conversation, but every episode I try to do as well of like that, making sure that you can see all the different possibilities and where different people and, and genders and everything could fit into this world, all the different, yeah, like the variations that just suggest, it just makes it so clear that all of this is ancient, just like they are ancient, you know, all the things that so many, you know, usually not tolerant people will say are new or because of the internet or because of who knows what, I don't even know the arguments these days, but all the things that people suggest are new, that's bullshit. It's just that people have voices now. People are louder. People are talking about it. This thing. And people aren't dying when they try exactly exactly they're able to talk well not everyone is dying when they try and not everywhere yeah um but but it is yeah it's just a matter of of like that confidence in in being able to be yourself versus having to hide it or or pretend you're something else so yeah i just think that that part is so important and, and interesting when it comes to these myths because they really do show everything you just have to look in the right places right and you know one of the things that I that I saw recently, um, you know, I've 
there's been a lot of transphobia, especially coming out of the UK recently. Not that it isn't mm-hmm. here too, but just it's um, particularly virulent over there. Yeah. Um, and you know, one of one of the arguments that you see is, oh, like this is just a, a fad and it's just a trend, and nobody was like this when we were growing up, except that that ignores all of the people who were silenced when they were growing mm-hmm. up. And they're like, no, no kids transitioned around me. Is like, who would have let them? Look yeah. at the adults your age who are transitioning and you'll see all of those kids who would have if they'd been able to, right? Mm-hmm. So like, this is exactly that is nothing here is new. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I said that there aren't very many people working on stuff like this. One of the very few that I've read is... Uh, Chris Mowat, um, I think I think they're at Sheffield, um, has a book that just came out about gender mm. in the ancient world. And Thrilling. S- yes. Sorry. And, no. um, you know, I haven't gotten a chance to read it yet, but I've read, you know, snippets. And um, I know they've done some presentations on the subject. And, you know, what you see there is this sort of consistent need to push back on the, oh, we can't use those labels. Well, how can you use the label heterosexual mm-hmm. for them? Like, that just wouldn't apply either. You have mm-hmm. to be able to simultaneously hold in your head that the terminology and the categories we use are not the ones they would have used and that everything we label now existed then and everything that existed then exists now. Mm -hmm. people i love to say this people do not change humanity does not fundamentally change we have the same broad spectrum of variations we have the same you know general tendencies as a mass and that's not a bad thing. I mean, a lot of people will be like, oh my God, are you saying we can never move past where we're... No, 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 no. What I'm saying is that people have always had the ability to understand the things that we understand now and the ability to understand the things they understood then that we don't. Mm-hmm. We are capable of putting ourselves in those shoes. And just because the way we think you know, the categories in our language may be different, that doesn't mean that they don't apply somewhere. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there were definitely spaces for people to be asexual. For women to say, no, I don't want marriage. And, you know, we don't have the evidence to know whether that was because they were ace, because they just hated the patriarchy that much because boy, I understand that. Um, that's where I'm at. That's, that's me as a person. I would be back there. Like not quite ace, not ace necessarily, but also just like, no, like, this like, is not no, gonna thanks. Be my life. I'm going to devote myself to being a vestal virgin because fuck you. That's yeah, why. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, like, sure. We don't, we don't know their internal motivations, but I'm going to tell you that those people existed. And these spaces allowed them to exist as themselves. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is just the coolest thing that we can learn from people like Atalanta and Hippolytus. That, that's 
it's so true it's so important it's something i i haven't talked about enough so i'm just so thrilled that you wanted to do this this is so great i i tend to to focus more on on like i suppose just everyone else because it's just what i'm more familiar with i think like you're saying you know the study of of asexuality is so new the understanding is not very broad like it is it is hard especially like you know coming at it with nothing and so this is just overall really exciting i you know i i tend to fall back on um the stories of trans people being transitioned by gods that that uh, sort of those are my my go-to thrilling ones where it's just like you know like you're saying like they had a space a space was made for them in whatever way you know you know in terms of like real practical living people we don't necessarily know but the fact that these myths existed in the way that they do I think really says a lot about the potential openness of those kind of things and and you know like the likelihood that people were able to live at least in in some way as them their true selves right exactly and if there was a place for atalanta in the mythology then maybe there was a place for a real life woman to just be a devotee of artemis and say no exactly yeah that's just i think i think that's beautiful honestly yeah because you know people will point to like the amazons as like the women warriors doing it for themselves and like try to connect that to the scythians which maybe yeah sounds cool Mm -hmm. um scythians were badass no argument there but the amazons are distinctly foreign in greek myth Mm -hmm. atalanta is not only greek but nobility yeah that's exactly the that's a key distinction that I don't think gets brought up enough just because it is sort of like the the broad strokes of this, but exactly right. Like the Amazons, their whole thing is that they're not Greek. That's what makes them the Amazons. And so it's not the same. It's not quite as, as like visceral and important as to have somebody like Atalanta who, who was everything that you've said in, in addition to the, just the overarching, like a badass woman who got to go out and hunt and fight and do all these super cool things. And that's just so such a thrill. And, you know, it's not like it caused no controversy, like back in the story mm-hmm. of the Caledonian boar, right? You have mm-hmm. you have the whole thing with Meliager. Meliager is like, she killed it, she gets the hide. And his uncles were so mad about that that they tried to kill him. And eventually did end up killing him in a roundabout fashion. Um, I don't know mm-hmm. if you've told this story, but... I have. Yeah. A long time ago, but yeah, the the... <laughs> The wood getting thrown into the fire and yeah, the out. his mother his mother being so upset that he killed her brothers that she killed him, like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I need to redo that story to more justice. Oh, it's such a crazy one. Yeah, but all of this happened because there's a difference of opinion in the society over mm-hmm. whether it's okay for a woman to occupy this space. But the fact is. That badass heroic Meliager, tragic Meliager, who gets Pindaric odes written about him, said yes. Mm-hmm. Meliager says women's rights. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. I, it just so like 
the story of Atalanta I told so long ago, and now all I want to do is write another episode for her that's like, <laughs> does her all the justice in the world. One thing I found interesting um, about her is the idea that um, both Arcadia and Boeotia at times tried to claim her. Mm-hmm. And and then it seems like there was also, a, and this is like a very broad strokes. I read it on theory.com, the website that has my whole heart. Um, <laughs> and, but basically the idea that like some presented it as if there were actually two women who like, Oh, I both didn't were named that. Atalanta. Yeah. That's, that's what it says there, which they're usually pretty great about that stuff. So huh. yeah, no, I'd believe that. Well, I, I like, I mean, I think obviously they both just loved her and tried to claim it her. I think the idea that there's two women, I would buy, but that they're both named Atalanta and that they both right. were yeah. raised by bears after being exposed is like, well, I think probably both of those regions just wanted her. Oh yeah. So yeah. Cool. And then, and then you get the stories later that try to smooth that distinction out by saying, oh, she was, she was born in Boeotia, but she was raised in Arcadia. That's what the deal mm. is. So, mm-hmm. so that makes total sense to me that both regions were, and you know, the deal with all of these myths is that every region had their own version. Every every mm-hmm. polis, every city state has its own version of every myth. And like even as like I mentioned before that that Artemis is in some places closer to the to the Near East, she's actually um sort of this mother of beasts character and and Artemis plus mother is just nonsensical when we think about her her attic version, the one we usually think about. Mm-hmm. But, like, you see statues of Artemis with hundreds of breasts. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's really fascinating. So, like, the these can vary really widely um, between mm-hmm. regions, between cities. Um, and even, even something as, like, central to our understanding of Greek mythology as um, Athena can be really mm-hmm. different outside of Athens, where she's not the patron goddess. <laughs> right mm-hmm. and her importance is a lot lower else elsewhere so mm-hmm. we get all sorts of really just weird versions that make very little sense with what we're used to um and that's kind of hard to hold in our heads like we tend to think of we tend to think of greek mythology as like lord of the rings or something where all of the characters have a role but it's more like dc comics where there are 18 different versions and they're all canon oh. somehow <laughs> um i like seeing it that way yeah that's the thing i try to reckon with a lot lately because i'm deeply obsessed with with like referring to all of the sources i can possibly find and explaining mm-hmm. that away and mm-hmm. but then i still have poor poor kind souls listening to this show who want to understand it and like want to understand chronology and like they want like finite answers about these things and i just want to be like don't don't stress yourself out over it just don't oh, yeah you, you you'll never get what you want so there you just there have to be okay are no it. easy answers i'm sad to say no. uh, i'm actually not that sad to say um <laughs> like like this is what drew me to it right Same. i love it like it's i love looking at all those little intricate bits and pieces and what differs and where and who told what and what changed and speaking of which mm. there is a little detail i mentioned earlier that i wanted to come back to so so we were mm. talking about parthenopius and his appearance in phonisi well mm-hmm. if you actually look at seven against thebes and his appearance there um like he's he's described in a little bit more detail and like who his mother is and where you know why he's important and all that um his devotion to artemis but then his device on his shield is actually the Sphinx eating a Theban. Mm. 
Mm. And and like I I read that and and just thinking about these two devices, Atalanta killing a boar and the Sphinx killing a man. They're mm-hmm. both warrior females. Mm-hmm. And they're both killing something that is a very sort of masculine embodiment. Mm-hmm. And I kind of love that. I think that those yeah. two aren't that different. Um, I think it has a very different sort of view on Atalanta's acceptability. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Says a little. It's very Aeschylus versus Euripides, I think. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Especially because Euripides is so much more focused on the women's perspective at all times. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Ladies are people. (laughs) I know, right? And, and, you know, I think you can can get some really interesting stuff out of how Euripides is portrayed in other things, like in Aristophanes. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've read the uh, Thesmophoria Zeusai. No, I need to. Yeah. It's... It's a wild ride. So for for the listeners, the Thesmophoria Zeusai, Thesmophoria was a women's festival in Athens where all of the men were shut out. It was sacrilege for them to come out during this festival. And the only men allowed to actually be present were foreigners. Foreign oh. men were allowed, but Athenian men were not. And oh. Greek men in general were not. But... The relevant thing in the Thesmophoria Zeusai, which is an Aristophanes, it's a comedy about this festival and about guys trying to sneak into the festival. They actually go to Euripides for tips on how to pass as a woman. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, mm-hmm. and what, how does, because I know that a lot, I know there's a lot of like, I don't know if I think it is from Aristophanes where we we get this idea that Euripides was like a misogynist. Yeah. yeah um, and so is that kind of where it's coming from? And he, he does he give a bad answer? Like what what's the story there? So as far as I can tell, and you may get different mm-hmm. opinions on this, but as far as I can tell, Euripides was either a straight trans woman or very, very gay. Like exclusively loved men. Hmm. And was not shy about the fact that he was okay being the bottom, which is not okay in Greek and Roman Roman culture. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what makes you effeminate, not loving another man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he seems to be a woman hater in the sense that he doesn't want to have sex with them and traditionalists find his portrayal of them ugly somehow because mm. they're real <laughs> right exactly like i read euripides women and i'm like these are relatable women yeah they have agency they're real people they're like complex and yeah oh my god yeah yeah like, exactly I, i'm obsessed with him mm-hmm. so i read that that sort of portrayal by euripides as him being able to step back from the imposed gender roles for whichever reason and say, okay, these women are people, they have their reasons and they're all going to be reasonable reasons, even if the actions they do are bad. Mm -hmm. And that's why someone like Phaedra is so compelling. Mm -hmm. And Medea. Yeah. That's why Medea is, even though he invented her killing her children, that wasn't part Mm -hmm. of the story before. 
I always I always forget that because it just feels so right. Right. But yeah. That it, it's yeah. It, that's the thing, right? He he gives us this horrific woman, but she is so compelling and complex and interesting, and she's just so many things that make me love her in a way where I'm like, well, I recognize that you are objectively bad. You're doing not great things, but you're so interesting and you're so well written in that play that I just like, I just want to be your best friend in this way where I'm like, I probably wouldn't in the end, you know, but (laughs) you know, like I, I just love her, but. Right. And so, and so I think that's why he writes Phonisi the way he does where, Mm -hmm. where our principal viewpoint characters are not Ateocles and Polynices, Mm -hmm. but Jocasta and Antigone. Yeah. Right. So, um, so when, when he sees, cause Aeschylus, was writing much earlier. I mean, not much mm-hmm. earlier, but earlier. When he sees the introduction of Parthenopius with this warrior woman of the Sphinx killing a Theban, he takes that and says, a warrior woman killing a symbol of masculinity for Parthenopius is not going to be abstract like that. It's his mother. Mm-hmm. And it's a positive. It's also not going to be... Yeah, it's also not going to be like Boeotian. Right. he's not coming from there yeah he's against thebes so it's not going to be the sphinx that was of thebes i mean like in in some sense that makes sense like you know if he wants to be intimidating sure true (laughs) true but but like for euripides writing that as parthenopius's symbol i think it really makes sense if he's thinking about gender relationships if he's thinking about you know what is a symbol of badassery to parthenopius his mm-hmm. his mother his mm-hmm. badass ace artemis loving mother mm-hmm. and the most you know widely recognized badass thing she ever did mm-hmm. and you know between that and and sort of the very compelling asexuality of hippolytus right where he's he you know, Phaedra is written lovingly, but Hippolytus really, he feels real too. His rejection of her feels just as real as her longing for him. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't feel like it's about her. Right? Like the mm-hmm. way it's written, you know, he does he does sort of insult her. But the main thing that we've already had set up in that play is that he is anti-Aphrodite in everything she stands for. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what's going on with him in that scene is like, he is disgusted, not necessarily by her, but by what she's suggesting Mm -hmm. and not because of some, you know, concern for his asshole of a father either. (laughs) Yeah. God, no, who would care about that? It's not like Theseus ever did anything for him. Lord. Mm-mm. so yeah that's uh that's it's all just so damn interesting i'm just sort of sitting here like in uh, i'm having one of my moments of like this is my job <laughs> but i do think my listeners would be really mad at me for not asking what are your thoughts on athena um mm-hmm. when it comes mm-hmm. to sexuality and asexuality yeah athena is a really fascinating case and um i was actually just having this conversation with one of my friends you know atalanta was my hero as a kid but my goddess of choice was never artemis it was athena mm-hmm. because books plus kicking the shit out of bullies plus you know 
wise counsel like and crafty things like this is my jam yeah i love her so problematic fave problematic fave but i love her to death i think if there's any case for any of the gods being genderless it would be athena Mm. um she's presented as a woman but she doesn't the only womanly thing she does is craft Mm-hmm. Right. Otherwise, she is kind of shorn of gender in a way that you mm-hmm. see mostly with like eunuchs. Yeah. She is, she's very competent. She's very respectable. And the only time anyone ever even tries anything with her, she just wipes them off onto the ground. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've told the story of. Erechtheus and and the Athenian claim to uh, to having come from their land. <laughs> come from their land? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I have a long time ago, and I've uh, it's definitely been mentioned, but we can mention it again because it's uh, a thing and it's entertaining. And I will tell you, like right now, because I, I I didn't think I was going to be talking about this today. I don't remember which god it is. Is it Poseidon? It's Hephaestus. It's Hephaestus. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Basically ends up jacking off on her leg. Mm-hmm. And she's like, ugh, gross, and wipes the semen off into the dirt. And that's where Athenians supposedly come from. Mm-hmm. And this is how the Athenians can claim to be children of Athena with Athena still being a maiden goddess. Yep. That's the only time anybody ever even slightly impinges on Athena's complete sexlessness. Like, there just aren't myths of that. There are no myths of her falling for anybody ever. Like, even Artemis gets that sometimes. Like I mentioned Orion earlier. Mm-hmm. And Callisto, mm-hmm. to an extent. Yeah, and, and you know, there is there is a lot of interpretation of Artemis as a lesbian. So, yeah, so, so my take on Athena is that mm. I think that she is the most sexless, genderless, and just complete completely removed from all of that side of humanity of all the gods um Mm -hmm. and so you know we have these three maiden goddesses and we've talked about artemis and her sort of like variable levels of sexuality depending on how you look at her and the other one that people more on the roman side like to talk about is hestia Mm -hmm. now hestia is a really interesting case because of course she is the goddess of the hearth and she's sort of an older woman i mean we get the idea that she's more matronly than maidenly mm-hmm. and so for her to be sexless means that she is what we would think of as a spinster right she's mm. she's never been interested and i love that but she's also a little bit of an outsider in some ways from the mythology there aren't mm-hmm. There are two stories about Hestia. And barely anything even in those two. Like, so her one story that we're not even sure where it comes from is is of her giving up her spot on Olympus. And like, on the one hand, that's kind of like, but why though? But on the other hand, she was of primary importance within the homes. And like, Mm -hmm. Greeks had hearth shrines in every house. They were sacrificing to Hestia every day. All the time. Yeah. I like to say that she just had better things to do than yeah. deal with the Olympian crap. Yes, exactly. That's also how I think of it. And like the other story is of somebody trying to assault her mm-hmm. uh, with Priapus. 
which again is more of a Roman side thing. Yeah, it's not, I think it's, I'm trying to think what the sourcing is on that. That's the one story I've had to tell about her because people are always asking me like, I want you to cover Hestia. And I'm like, like, but I how? love that you want me to, but there's <laughs> there's nothing. Here's That's the thing that right. that I think, unless you're in this, you don't really get. And and it's another fascinating part, right? Is the, the number of characters who are, there's nothing, but she is vital. She is so important. I she's can't so possibly stress. Important. Yeah, she's like everything. She meant everything, but also she has absolutely no story. So I can't tell you about her. Right. And it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so like, just like you were saying, like, there's the sense that she just had better shit to do than deal with the Olympians. There's the sense that she had better shit to do than deal with sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like I connect with Hestia most. Yeah. Just feel like I have better things to do. <laughs> For me, I, you know, when I when I found the word agender, I was like, yes, I have always mm. been that thing. But when I came across asexuality and uh, and like demisexual and all of those words, I'm like, where do like this feels good, but where do I actually fit? And I actually spent a long mm-hmm. time thinking about it. And I think questioning is really important mm-hmm. to that process. And for people to understand that questioning does happen, that it's not just a phase so much as it is part of mm-hmm. figuring it out. Um, mm-hmm. People, individuals are not static and are not simple. <laughs> so I don't know precisely what the deal with Hestia is, but I think like mm-hmm. Artemis more in Rome than in Greece, she creates this space for people who don't want to deal with that bullshit. Mm-hmm. But are really important. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, when when we talk about Vestal Virgins, this is really not my area of study. Like, I don't know all that much about the Vestals. Um, Roman, Roman ritual is not my thing. But when we talk about the Vestals, like this much I can say is like a lot of Vestals really got into it, but a lot of Vestals also like got married as soon as they got out. Hmm. So like you have, you have people who stay in the priesthood forever. You have people who are celibate who aren't necessarily ace. Right. Mm -hmm. And there is Mm -hmm. a distinction because it's not about what you do. It's about how you feel, what you experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, celibacy is a is more so a choice of of just not partaking versus not feeling. Right, and so I think this is one of those uh, ongoing sort of confusions that people have about non straight sexuality mm-hmm. and and attraction is like, well, of course, a gay man can choose to be in a heterosexual relationship that has happened a lot that's you know it's not really healthy but it (laughs) happens and it happens Mm -hmm. for social pressure reasons and it happens because they think they should or because they're scared you know it happens for all kinds of reasons and and also like marriage is one of those things where the definition has changed so much and people are like, mm. the definition is one man and one woman. I'm like, whose definition? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like what? I, I mean, yeah. And just the expectations around it and all of those like varied things that add to all the societal pressures, you know? Right. Yeah. So it doesn't make a person less gay if they're in a straight relationship. It just means that they're not being honest with themselves and their partner 
uh, mm-hmm. for one reason or another, knowingly or yeah. unknowingly. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that can turn out okay. It doesn't mean they're evil. It just means that they haven't figured it out. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, it's totally normal for, I mean, maybe Atalanta did love the man who beat her in her face for a while. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Aces can have sex, too. Arrows can occasionally have real relationships. It does happen. It doesn't make them not what they identify as. Because mm-hmm. it's not about the action, it's about the feeling. Mm-hmm. And you know, like like we said earlier, it's all a spectrum, right? And it's not mm-hmm. just, you know, the spectrum of desire from male to female, like on the Kinsey scale. It's the spectrum also of none to lots, right? Like, mm-hmm. there can be people who never have any sexual desire ever. And there can be people who only experience sexual desire once in a while. And those mm-hmm. are both sort of under the ace umbrella. And they're both have been pathologized, right? Like you hear all the time about frigid women, right? Or men who just can't get it up. And one of my favorites actually is, and this is getting into again, Roman side, but also uh, real life, not mythology. Mm. You've heard of Horace, the, mm. the, the poet who is probably the Roman poet closest to my heart because he mm. loves Sappho and Sappho is my absolute all time favorite. Horace, his nickname, because, you know, they all get nicknames because Rome only has five male names. I I don't understand why they do this, but whatever. His nickname was Flaccus. You know Mm. what Flaccus means? Flaccid, I would imagine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, he basically never talks about sex. And, you you know, you're Mm -hmm. used to like your Catullus, who is, you know... (laughs) the sparrow is my penis and you know it'd be the your you know propertius who's like oh cynthia please fuck me you know like you have all of this passion and then you have horace who's like god damn a tree almost fell on me today i haven't read horace and now i think i have to that's one of my favorites that's really funny and you know with the combination of the subject matter and the nickname i'm like ace icon (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh that's so that's so fascinating oh my gosh this is like spilled into so many different (laughs) places i love it thank you so much for doing this this has been such a fascinating conversation and i'm uh i'm just so thrilled to have had it and it i think it's i think it's very important and i personally just have like only peripherally been you know aware of the the intricacies of, of asexuality and and aromanticism and I'm just I'm very interested to know more in general but then also to be able to connect it to the thing I love more than anything in this world which is just like learning more shit about Greek mythology was a real thrill so thank you so much Julie thank you so much for having me I I had so much fun today I'm so glad I this is the most fun thing I get to do is have these conversations and when people are obviously having as much fun it just it's so much it's wonderful so thank you Oh, nerds, thank you all 
so much for listening. Like I said, such a thrill. This was such an incredible episode to record. I just absolutely loved every moment of our conversation, and I am so thrilled that you all get to listen to it. So I hope you loved it as much as I did. I don't see how you could not. That's where we're at with this one. Thank you all so much. You are all the best. I am Liv, and I love this shit. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com.